0: You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss.
1: we will can be accomplished still. drops of water mill not,
0: not. welcome to the heartland labor forum a weekly show of news information and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansell. Tonight's show is being underwritten by the Kansas City Building Trades Council and IBEW Local 124. Kansas City Building Trades Council, the men and women who build KC, and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 124, supports the Heartland Labor Forum. We've been wiring Kansas City since 1905, and if you're not finding your electrical contractor at IBEW124.org, then you're not getting the best value for your money. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show... Are you one of those people who thinks the kids are lazy, that they can't get to work on time, that they don't have any work ethic, and that they're going to make the U.S. fall behind? Guess what? They say that about every generation. And so tonight on the Heartland Labor Forum, we're going to bust the myth of lazy youth. Rather, they're going to do it because they're going to be on the show, a bunch of 20-somethings who are activists who are going to tell us about their values and their work ethics and where they want to take this country. So stay tuned. In the news. Nurses at Research and Menorah rally against staffing shortages, and union numbers are up in 2022, while density is down. Our feature at the end of the show is Washington Window on Workers with Mark Grunberg. We'll talk about the new Republican leadership in the House Labor Committee. Not a good story. And now for the news.
2: Comes from PAI. The U.S. had 14.2. million union members in calendar year 2022, 273,000 more than the year before the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported in its annual survey. But because the workforce grew faster as the nation recovered from the coronavirus-caused depression of 2021, union density declined 0.2 percent to 10.1 percent. All the gains came in the private sector, where union membership increased by 200 193,000 to 7.223 million. The pu- public sector, which has yet to fully recover from job losses the virus-caused crash produced, reported 7.062 million members plus 823,000 free riders who use, certain use union services but don't pay for them. In a statement, AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler noted the absolute numbers of unionists grew despite intense corporate union busting by Goliath such as Amazon and Starbucks. She said, in 2022, we saw working people rising up despite often illegal opposition from companies that would rather pay union-busting firms millions than give workers a seat at the table. The momentum of the moment we are in is clear. Organizing victories are happening in every industry, public and private, and every sector of our economy all across the country. The wave of organizing will continue to gather steam in 2023 and beyond, despite broken labor laws that rig the system against workers. The BLS numbers also don't reflect the tide of union elections last year. In fiscal year 2022 alone, which included the first nine months of the calendar year, the National Labor Relations Board reported running 1,522 union elections, up 59.5 percent from 954 the fiscal year before those figures lag behind too because they don't include wins and losses in october through december 2022 just in the last two weeks of December, for example, the board certified a 13-to-5 win among 42 workers in a Starbucks in Columbus, Ohio. The Pennsylvania Association of Nurses and Health Professionals won 191-to-64 at the Geisinger Medical Center outside Scranton-Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. And there was a 99-to-3 landslide for office and professional employees, Local 153, at Tufts University. Diversity. In Massachusetts, for example, also not le- reflected in a survey, AFSCME mm-hmm. tsunami of support at Chicago's Art Institute, 410 to 33 among six, 600 workers in December, or AFT Local 5221's win, two wins by a combined 12 to 0 margin. Everybody voted at the University of Vermont Medical Center in Burlington. Nor, for the, that matter, for the most publicized win of 2000. The independent Amazon labor union's victory at the monster shipping firm's Staten Island JFK8 warehouse, which due to employer stalling wasn't certified until late December. The warehouse employs 8,325 workers.
3: The Kansas legislature just can't stop trying to suppress Kansas' right to vote. Several bills were introduced during last Thursday's House Committee on Elections, including bills language requiring election officials to cross reference voter immigration status and welfare recipient lists with voter registration lists. Also included was a bill requiring a witness for each signature on advance ballot envelopes. Did you hear that? If you get a mail-in ballot, you must find someone to witness you filling it out before you can mail it in. Another bill scheduled to have a hearing this week is House Bill 2013, which requires a runoff between the top two candidates whenever a statewide candidate fails to receive a majority of votes cast. Mm -hmm. Seriously? So in the name of having candidates reach candidates elected by a minority when there are more than two candidates the two with the most votes will then be elected in a special election almost guaranteed to cost a lot of extra money and have a smaller number of voters than the general election that makes sense doesn't it finally house bill 2056 would require that required that advance ballots be received by the election office by 7 p.m. on Election Day. This bill could potentially disenfranchise thousands of Kansas voters because those voters live in areas with slower mail delivery, such as rural areas.
4: Registered nurses at three HCA healthcare facilities in Kansas City area Research Medical Center, Research Psychiatric Center, and Menorah Medical Center join thousands of members of the National Nurses United this afternoon in actions to demand hospital industry end in their profession's staffing crisis by providing safe numbers of nurses to care for patients. The Kansas City area nurses are members of National Nurses Organizing Committee and affiliate of NNU. NNU nurses emphasize that this winter's surge of RSV, influenza, and COVID-19 patients resulted in crisis conditions because of a decades-long campaign by hospitals to decrease inpatient beds, particularly in pediatric units and units deemed less profitable, a short staff units in order to maximize profits. For example, Julie Perry of NNUKC, which represents RNs at Research and Menorah, which are owned by the conglomerate HCA, said her members overwhelmingly voted no confidence in the chief nursing officer, Julie Philbeck, at the research hospital for making short staffing a daily occurrence by constantly assigning a minimum number of nurses to provide patients care and then sending some of the assigned nurses to fill other staffing holes in other departments. She has also cut the number of charged nurses in half, and piled on extra nursing duties to the ones left in the department. Zoe Schmidt, an RN at Research said, turnover is a rampant problem at our facility and that hurts patients. Our staffing needs are dire right now. In the last four months, we've lost another 51 RNs, which is almost 10% of our nursing staff. Perry recommended that people call nursing administration at both Research and Menorah and ask them to assign more nurses per shift or you'll take your business elsewhere. Tonight's news was read by Margaret Miles, Judy Morgan, and I'm Tom Gebkin. Everything
5: to know about me is written on this page The number you can reach me, my social and my age Yes, I served in the Army, it's where I learned to shoot Eighteen months in the desert Pouring sand out of my boots No, I've never been convicted of a crime I could start this job at any time I got a strong back, steel toes Rarely call in sick A good truck, what I don't know I catch on real quick. I work weekends if I have to. Nights and holidays give you forty, and then some. Whatever it takes. Three dollars and change at the pump. Cost of living's high, going up. We went to work that day. There
4: it was. Closing the plan. Scared. You know, you think about your kids. You know, what are they gonna do? You know, what
5: are we gonna do? I put Robert down as a reference. He's known me all my life. We attend the same church. He introduced me to my wife. Gave my last job everything before it headed south. The shoes off of my children's feet the food out of their mouths Yesterday my folks offered to help But they're barely getting by themselves I got a strong back, steel toes I rarely call in sick A good truck, what I don't know I catch on real quick, I work weekends, if I have to, nights and holidays, give you 40 and then some, whatever it takes, three dollars and change at the pump. cost of living's high, oh, yeah. cost of living's high. and and well said it's going to get higher i'm sure a hundred others have applied rumor has it you're only taking five i got a strong back steel toes i'm handy with a wrench there's nothing i can't drive nothing i can't fix i work sun up sundown ain't too proud to sweep the floors bank is started calling and the wolves are at my door three dollars and change at the point. cost of livings high going up well, I really don't know what I'm gonna do I've got i got two boys and one of them fixing to go off to college and- won't be a real eye-opener for people once this plant's gone.
4: Okay, that song was The Cost of Living by Ronnie Dunn. I'm Tom Gebkin, president of CWA Local 6360. And I will be co-hosting this segment with Judy Morgan, President Emeritus of AFT Local 691 and a termed-out state legislator and my friend. (laughs) Every generation going back to at least the 1920s looks at the next generation coming up as flawed. It happened in the greatest generation when they moved into the workforce and then defeated fascism in World War II. The Great Depression generation looked at the baby boomers as long-haired hippies who listened to the devil's music, took drugs, and didn't want to work. Elvis was not looked at kindly by this generation. As baby boomers began to run things and are making plans to turn things over to the next group, many boomers find themselves looking down on this up-and-coming group with the same disparaging comments. They want work. They want to stay in the basement playing video games. We have spoiled them. And other nonsensical remarks. The truth is this is the most educated group the country has ever seen. They work hard, they're able to navigate technology in ways older folks could never do. They're more informed and concerned about many issues, politics, business, medicine, the environment, race, LBGTQ, and other important items. They don't have the same views as their grandparents. This is a good thing. Older generations have a hard time with change. On tonight's show, we'll dispel this myth. We'll visit with four educated, smart, highly motivated, and hardworking young people. Margaret Miles, Carson Pope, Jameson Wells, and Tristan Amezqua Hogan. This discussion will make you rethink the negative attitudes you may have about the future of our country. Guys, Judy and I want to welcome you to the Heartland Labor Forum.
2: Hi, everyone. First, I want to thank my friend, Tom, for getting the music for us tonight for both segments of the show. Thanks, Tom. Um, the first question is going to go to Jamison and Tristan. I read several articles in which the author stated that young people work to live, not live to work. So what do you think is meant by that statement, and do you agree or disagree with it? J- Jamison, f- first to you.
6: Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, when I, when I hear that, it, it really does speak to this core value. I I think there is some truth in that, but I think that's okay. Um, this idea that um, we don't live to work, we actually um, fight for decent workplaces in terms of in terms of the benefits and work life balance, because um, we, we want to live decent full lives outside of the workplace. Um, you know, like Tom said, we do work hard and. Uh, we care about the work that we do but we we do want to be able to go home and have that that leisure time with our loved ones um be able to take vacations and be able to um, take care of ourselves outside of work so um so, so i don't but- have too too much issue with it now.
2: Yeah, so basically lead a more balanced life is what you're saying.
6: Yeah, precisely, yep.
2: Okay, uh, Tristan, same question to you.
6: Well, I think that what Jameson said
7: is absolutely correct. Uh, I think that he's also correct to build off of what Tom said in referencing the way in which previous generations perceive uh, the generation that comes after them, well, as far as like negative connotations used towards those, uh, the values that are perpetuated by the generation. I definitely think that the notion that work to live not live to work is, is, is a very real sentiment Amongst their generation, but I think that it's it, it, like the previous counterculture movements, probably most popular within that group. I think that personally, I definitely abide by that. I wouldn't accept a higher-paying job if it meant that I had a worse work-life balance. It just is not something that would align with. So I think that for a lot of people, and which I think other people of my age also resonate with that. Um, I think that the idea that like there is. There are ways to make more money in some instances, and I think that what matters most is having a way to have your needs met and everyone who their needs met in a safe work environment without having to work constantly. I think that's the most important thing we take away from here.
4: Many, uh, kind of going, rehashing that question a little bit, but many in our older generation, they work just to pay bills. Uh, when I would took, was in college, one of the classes I took, they talked about that the boomer generation was willing to work and sacrifice their leisure time to make as much money as they could to provide their family a higher standard of living and I was that guy a textbook that guy you guys like like Tristan said value your leisure time and that's not a bad thing it's just a change in the generational values and uh, Margaret and Carson would you guys weigh in on this first to Margaret
3: um, yeah, no, I agree with you and I agree with what's been said before uh, uh, from Jameson and Tristan about at working towards that work-life balance and how important that is for people in our generation. Um, I wanna highlight leisure time a little bit um, as something that's brought up. I think we value leisure time, but I also think we use leisure time very differently than the generations before us. Um, The nonprofit industry is one of the fastest growing industries in the US, and I think that's partially because people wanna get involved and give back to their communities. So not only are we fighting for that work-life balance for our personal lives and for our families, but we're also fighting to give back to our communities um, and and have that time and that money to give back to our communities. So I think that that definitely plays a role in how we view the workplace and um, and why we work and why we go to work every day.
2: So so I want to follow up a little bit with you, Margaret. So rather than a lot of us think of leisure time like watching television or going to movies going out to dinner, but you're saying you broaden leisure time to include volunteer activities.
3: Yeah, I think it's I think leisure time in this context sometimes can have a negative connotation when we're talking about working and going to work and what it means to quote-unquote do work. Uh, But work is more than just what you go to the office to do every day. It's participating in democracy. It's participating in uh, other nonprofit activities such as like food drives or giving back to your schools or spending time with any community activist group. So I think that that's something that our generation really values and sees as an important way to fill gaps um, in society where needs aren't getting met. So I think that's really important to us.
8: So when we're talking about you know, what employees expect in, a, in an employer and, and what work looks like. I think the expectations of work have changed. Um, you used to be able to go and work your shift, go home, um, and then you're done. You're clocked out. Um, these days it's, it's increasingly common for employers to expect employees to respond to emails and calls after hours. Uh, employers are changing their work schedules more than they used to. Um, every example I can find, you used to be able to, to work over summer and, and save enough money to pay for college. Um, so. You know, now that people are having to work multiple jobs or pick up side gigs just to pay the bills, um, now labor can be more selective uh, because we're more mobile. And um, I, I, don't, I, would, I, don't think, I don't know if I would say that uh, younger people these days are, are more any more dedicated to our time off than people used to be.
2: Okay, Um, how do millennials feel about traditional work values like strict dress codes, meetings for the sake of meetings, fixed working hours? I know that my uh, sister-in-law's fiance works from home, and you know he does his work in his pajama bottoms with some kind of shirt on top because he because he doesn't always he doesn't because his bottom half of his body isn't seen. So um, how how do and he's not a millennial even. So how how do millennials feel about those things? And we'll go to you first, Carl. And then we'll follow up with Jamison.
8: Sure, Judy. So I, I think that's uh, it's worth. Considering that these topics, uh, I think, mainly more apply to more administrative work. Um, there's there's still tons of millennials who are who are in the trades, service, and retail work. You know, we're talking about millennials. Um, I'm I'm a millennial. I'm 26. Um, other people, other millennials include Jason Gander and uh, Senator John Ossoff. You know, we're talking about about 72 million people here, um, and so we're 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 talking about a huge range of people. And within that, there's going to be really wide um, uh, ideas and, and viewpoints. Um, and and so there's also been a change. In what traditional work values mean, Um, women are working on all areas of the economy now. Uh, Millennials and and Zoomers have watched our our parents go through this. Um, You know, um, when we're talking about buying into a system, um, buying into a a loyalty to a company to to retire. you know th- things are changing um and so uh, it's natural to seek other opportunities um, to make up for uh, areas like that
2: okay james jameson what do you think about uh, millennials and traditional work values
6: yeah i mean i i think it sort of on two fronts there there's been a lot of progress one on things like um, strict dress codes and kind of strict schedules I, I think there's a kind of natural resistance to um you know depending on your workplace i think a lot of Um, big corporations try and function like essentially totalitarian institutions. So I think there's just a sort of a natural resistance on that front. Um, And I think on the other hand, we don't want to confuse, you know, this work-life balance with people not wanting to be efficient about their work. Um, So you named like meetings for the sake of meetings or Um, even some of these values for the sake of values in the workplace that um, don't allow us to be efficient or creative or go about our work in in ways that are oftentimes proven to be just as effective. So it's definitely this resistance to um, kind of rules for the sake of rules and actually giving us a chance to um, do do a good job. Like we we still want to do a good job, even if we want that balance um, outside of work.
2: I know I recently read an article that talked about meetings and that uh, people are just getting zoned out by all the virtual meetings. And one suggestion was anything you can put in an email, do that rather than have a meeting. And I know I agree with that. That's a, that's a good thing, I think. So you're listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, and we're talking to four young, hardworking activists about the myth of lazy youth in, our day in this day and time.
4: Uh, I do have a real quick follow up question. Do you feel that corporations or corporate America has made the adjustments uh, for what y- you guys, how you guys want to work? Do you think that, or do you think they have to s- a lot of adjusting to do? I think it's a, a,
8: a perfectly natural reaction to the changing expectations. I mean, employers have definitely changed what retirement looks like. The gold watch and the pension aren't the standard anymore. And so when that happens, it's much, when it's much more difficult to retire, people are willing to uh, delay career advancement or do projects or jobs they don't really care for in exchange um, for a much larger payoff in the end, including actual retirement.
4: Well, previous generations, like you said, would work at one place their entire career and they'd retire with a nice pension. I read somewhere that someone entering the workforce today will have five different careers in the span of their work life. This is a big change for corporate America in a short time. Do you plan on staying on one job your entire career? And how do you feel about other young people you know? Like, do you guys anticipate moving around the workforce? And that's for uh, all of you guys to answer.
3: Um, I can speak on my personal experience, Tom. Uh, Personally, I've already had three jobs in my adult (laughs) career. So no, I don't plan on staying in one job uh, for all of my career. Um, I think today there's a lot of transparency in social media, but also in between different workplaces in the same industry. So it's really easy to tell when you're in one, one workplace. Uh, whether or not that workplace is fulfilling the same benefits as its competitor, and if they're not, why not move over there if you're gonna do the same job for more money and more benefits? Um, So I think that's the general attitude for most of the people in my generation, is if we see a job and we see an opportunity for lateral or horizontal growth, we're gonna take it.
7: Absolutely. Uh, I I think that, just to echo what Margaret said, is that, I I mean, I've. Had I don't even know how many jobs so far, uh, <laughs> five, six, seven, and I, I definitely don't plan on. As much as I love doing what I do, I do not plan on staying in my current role forever. Um, I think that uh, something that we see repeated a lot is that we lose out on opportunities to either learn new things or have salary advancements. Um, and beyond that, uh, I, I think that that's mostly like as far as like a, a more traditional like work environment that we're describing right now. But I mean, on the flip side is that like you have union members uh, who may work at the exact same place their entire life. And have very good lives doing so. So I think it really depends on what sort of work you're engaging in, how you do that work. I mean, you could work for the same, I don't know, iron company your entire life and probably make a great salary, have a great pension, and you could be my age. But the flip side is, you could be doing a lot of other things and not have that opportunity.
8: Tristan, that's an excellent point. I mean, when we're talking about People seeking that stability and and transparency in their work, Um, I mean, one thing that comes to mind that I've seen uh, a lot of success with is the uh, the Missouri Apprentice Ready program. Um, It it brings young people in from those jobs with unpredictable pay, unstable hours, into a training program to to get a job with full transparency on benefits. The pay scale is is transparent. You know what your hours are gonna be. Um, So hundreds of young workers have already gone through this program and we have yet to see any of the graduates uh, changing careers. So if you're thinking about it an apprenticeship program is right for you then head over to org for more
6: information um highly recommend it
2: jameson how about you are you going to stay in the same job your entire life
6: no no i, I mean I, I really do appreciate the the previous points made especially you know i think that distinction it, it does come down to the type of work you do Um, I think one of the principles in organizing work is this idea that you organize yourself out of a job. So um, it's not as much that sort of corporate ascension as much as it's, um, you know, keep figuring out what new skills you can learn and share with others. Um, But that other point, I mean, do people have a good reason to want to stay at the same job? And um, I'd be curious to see the breakdown of those numbers for folks uh, in union jobs. I think when you give people a real reason and they they know what their benefits are, that transparency, that's what makes people wanna mm-hmm. stay. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's that real balance of how, how are people enticed to wanna stay and is it just the nature of the job that uh, people move around?
2: Okay, so you, so I think you all are saying that it, it varies, that some people are going to change jobs a lot among the millennial generation, but there there may be some that, that end up hooking into a career they really like and sticking with it. Um, yep. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, another thing previous generations believed in was the American dream of owning their own home. I know I felt real lucky that I... Uh, my late husband and I got our first home when we were like 24 and 25, and it was probably, I think, one of the best financial investments of our life. Is that an important goal for, uh, for people your
7: age? And we're gonna give this to Tristan and Margaret. Absolutely. I think that uh, I, me and Margaret bring an interesting conversation here because uh, my wife and I, we do own our home. Uh, we purchased a home in the west side and we're, we're very lucky to have done so. Uh, but I think that what you mentioned as far as the financial security and viewing uh, homeownership as an, an unfortunate uh, investment is a very real part of that. Um, I think I saw that like 39% of like people under 34 own a house or something on those lines. And I think that, that number really recently ticked up. Um, I, I don't know if that's later than previous generations, but I do feel like the idea of owning a home, or at least having housing stability, and a sense of like generational wealth as a, as a, as a vehicle um, is very important to my generation. Uh, I think that's what, if we really talk about the way that housing is used in the United States, I and mean, that's what it is. Uh, the idea of that you could own a house, that it could you know, increase in value, it, it is an unfortunate part of the dynamic. So I think that that is a goal for most of my age group.
3: I would agree with Tristan on that. Um, I would only add that I think it's becoming a more unrealistic Mm -hmm. goal day by day. Um, The majority of Americans today—I think I read an article dated in September that said 149 million Americans work two jobs, um, and out of that, 400,000 Americans work two full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's a large commitment just to make ends meet. Uh, In Kansas City, I am not a honomer, honomer like Christian or Tristan, excuse me, but. I um, am a renter so I rent north of the river um, and I know that my rent is probably going to go up significantly when I have to resign my lease. That's a problem that we have in Kansas City of a housing uh, crisis. There's a a large amount of um, apartments out there that are available and they're open and they're looking for renters but they're just priced out. Um, they're either luxury apartments or you know, we're, we're stuck with slums. That's kind of your options here in Kansas City. That's kind of the options I think that most people in my generation are facing is that we're not, our pay has not increased enough to meet the housing uh, needs and requirements of the market right now and uh, it's, it's difficult, it's very difficult to, to kind of pick and choose, you know, you're trying to save up money, but you're also trying to, to be able to pay for food and be able to go out and spend your leisure time and develop a family. So, you know, it's a complicated issue, and I think it definitely depends on what career path you're in, uh, but I think it's becoming more unrealistic for us to be able to do that.
4: Hey, you guys, let's take a couple of quick messages and we'll come back to this conversation. We're at 27th at
5: 930. Understanding Israel-Palestine airs another episode in its series, The Nagba Project. Listen as Palestinian refugees in Lebanon explain why they abruptly left their homes in 1948 in response to the growing theft from Zionist militia. That's Understanding Israel-Palestine at 930, Friday, January 27th.
4: Hi, this is Daryl Oliver, Volunteer Coordinator at KKFI. Our phone drive will be starting soon, and we need volunteers for our phone bank. You can participate remotely or by coming into the station. All phone bank volunteers must be comfortable talking to donors on the phone and entering pledges on the computer. In addition, remote phone bank volunteers will need a reliable internet connection and a computer with a microphone and speakers. Sign up for a shift today at kkfi.org slash phone bank or contact me at 816-994-7878. And we're back to the Heartland Labor Forum having an interesting discussion with four young millennials. I want to follow up on the last discussion with whoever wants to take this. Uh, Do you think that student debt is holding you back or holding your generation back from the purchasing of houses?
3: I will speak to that, Tom. Um, I'll be very candid on here. Um, I pay a significant amount a a month in student loan payments. I actually pay more than my rent is due in in student loan payments a month. those you know I I entered into that debt knowing the reality of that situation and I think a lot of Americans are not as privileged as I was to know the situation that I was entering in when I signed on for those loans Um, but that is a huge cost that most Americans have to deal with every day and every month Um, personally I've had to make choices in my leisure time you know based off of that one expense so I think that that is an amount of money that we cannot discount, and an amount of pressure to pay off that debt that we can't discount on our generation. I don't know if you two want to jump in on that, but
7: uh, to jump in there, also, I think that the uh, one of the one of the uh, questionable parts of this is that my wife and I are have dual income, no kids, uh, which definitely helps with like household income wise, and also I think it's the deciding factor in this conversation because you talk about student debt payments, which is a reality for I think everyone here. Uh, that I mean, having extra income and not having kids yet, which is also probably a very intentional part as a result of student loan debt and whatnot. So I think I think that that's definitely a compounding and very punishing factor. Um, I not to advocate for it, but I really hope that uh, Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness comes through. <laughs>
2: Me too. I have a daughter and a son-in-law. Uh, Jameson, how about you? Are, are you facing student debt?
6: Um, a bit, not as much actually. I dropped out. In college in the middle uh, because of that. I mean, it was, I was just staring down the barrel of do do I wanna have massive debts? Um, Working on a degree that, you know, it was a pretty unhappy path. Um, You know, I'll I'll just mention, we we talked about us being sort of the most educated generation, specifically um, black women in terms of college education are the most educated um, sort of demographic group. And of course that then coincides with the largest source of student debt so you know i I just i feel like this is such a pin in this conversation we talk about the american dream and how people um want to do a good job and and actually have access to good benefits but then you have something like student debt where oftentimes if you've gotten a decent job it is um following taking on a massive debt that again we we all were told we we needed to take on usually so Mm -hmm. Um, as someone who deals with a bit less, I have a few thousand dollars, it's still frustrating that um, we're kind of encouraged to do that, to, to look to look for good work. Um, and then, you know, it's almost a breach of contract, you know, I just right. ponied up all this money and, and now it's, what are the job prospects?
2: Yeah, you bring up a point because some people go to college, have that debt, and then they end up not even getting a job in their field which is definitely a problem. Did you want to address that, Carson?
8: Oh, I, I, uh, it's, it's definitely a problem. I mean, I, so I actually wound up in, in living in Missouri um, because it was the cheapest place for me to attend a four-year college out of all the places I, I applied. I re, you know, I grew up in Texas, but um, no, I mean, I'm happy, happy I'm here. Um, but, yes, the, the cheapest option for me to go to a four-year school uh, resulted in about you know $30,000 of debt. So um, definitely needs to be addressed. <laughs>
4: Yeah, this is for Jamison and Carson, continuing our uh, college discussion. We've been told for a long time that college is the way to achieve success, and we've kind of left the building trades and the blue-collar jobs behind. And we've already established that tuition costs, they've gone through the roof, and a lot of the millennials have college debt. Even my kids have some college debt. A college diploma doesn't always guarantee a job. What What do you guys think of it? First, to Jameson, and then to Carson.
6: Yeah, I think I mean it's. There's a reason that corporations um, like Mohila go after you. You know, they they really work to ensure that we have to keep paying our student debt, and they constantly attack unions, which mm-hmm. a lot of those more blue collar, hands on jobs that you described um, are are so beneficial, pay well, have great benefits like earn sick time and high wages because of the union. So you see these corporate attacks on both unions as an institution and really trying to extract this debt because when it comes down to it, it's it's an ongoing power struggle. They want to have the power to pay us low wages, offer low benefits. Um, so, so that makes it feel like even more of a trap that you might um, go for a college degree and whether, you know, attain it or not, not attain it you don't really have much of a guarantee or assurance um, on finding a job in your field, unless again, to bring it back to corporations, you instead of taking this public defender job with your law degree, it's gonna be a lot more lucrative to be a corporate lawyer. So it's really, this is like a, a great encapsulation of just this corporate assault on working class people. And for our audience, what is Mohila? Yeah, Mohila is um, one of the largest, I want to get this as right as I can, but it's one of the largest um, student debt um, servicers, and they were uh, one of the corporations, I think the main corporation named in the lawsuit by a few attorney generals, including our former Attorney General Eric Schmidt, that um, sued to overturn the Biden Student debt forgiveness. So, Gila mm-hmm. is one of the companies that basically was um, active in trying to prevent the collector of student debt or the institution that collects student debt from then discharging that debt and lifting people, like everyone on this call, out from out from under that debt mm-hmm. at least to a degree.
8: So, Jameson that's an ex- that's an excellent point. I mean, that when the um, back to what you're saying about the, the reciprocity isn't there when you're you know, going, going through college and you're starting to question um, whether it is going to ultimately pay off in the end. Um, so again, you know, we're, when we're talking about tens of millions of people here in, in the group of, of young people, um, it's, I think it's natural for, for college to be um, um, for some and, and not for others. Um, but uh, for example, um, so my mom Went to college in the late 70s, and she made two dollars seventy six two dollars and seventy six cents an hour, working at a burger shack. And um, she paid for an entire year of college that way, working part time there. Mm-hmm. Throughout college, she did uh, par- work part time, work study jobs. Worked in the um, worked in the admissions office, and and um, sewed costumes for the theater department and, and things like that. And uh, had a you know couple Pell grants here and there, part time jobs, and graduated uh, virtually debt free. So that's unfathomable in, in today's economy. And so, yes, we're seeing this large-scale shift of, of college um, being – people being priced out of certain parts mm. of, of the economy and of life, um, things including college.
2: That's a good point. I, I went to UMKC and didn't have any debt. I graduated in 70 and only had to work a little part-time job to – to maintain that, so very good point. So during the uh, pandemic, many Americans were laid off, and I know Margaret, you and uh, Tristan have both said you've are, you've already had several jobs in your your uh, young existence. Um, and according to a two thousand nineteen Harris poll, workers under thirty five expressed more layoff anxiety than their older counterparts. Do you have any any you or any of your other young friends worry about being laid off from your job?
3: um yeah i think it's a concern regardless of the generation you're in of losing your job and losing that steady stream of income um, and you know questioning what you're going to do to make ends meet and how you're going to take care of your family Um, i think the reason that some of my generation might have more layoff anxiety is because of the pandemic Um, i graduated in 2020 in may of 2020 um, and it was very difficult to find a job during the pandemic so once we did find a job you held on to that and you hoped for the best, and we're still holding on to a lot of those positions. Um, but additionally, I mentioned earlier, a lot of Americans are working two jobs, if not two full-time jobs, and so if you're relying on two jobs to you know, make ends meet, and if you lose one of those, or if you lose your only job, you're, you're faced with a lot of high costs and a very difficult environment to go out and find a new job in. So I think that's probably the main motivator for that layoff anxiety, but I'm sure Tristan has some better mm-hmm. insights.
7: I don't know about better insights. Uh, this this uh, section specifically talks about workers under 35, and I think that a big part of this layoff anxiety is that those workers have seen multiple economic crises in their lifetime. I mean, you mentioned the pandemic, which obviously is a defining one, I and mean, we look at 2008. Um, I think that one of the, the quiet parts of all of this is that workers under 35 have had no opportunities to build up any sort of safety net. Uh, the average savings according to Market Watch for workers under 35 is like $3,200, mm-hmm. which that's enough for rent, your car payment, your insurance, and some food for one month. That's not that's not, a, that's not a fallback, that, that is an emergency, Like that, that is a crisis itself. Um, I think that a lot of young workers worry about being laid off because they don't have backup opportunities. I think that a lot of young workers increasingly don't have generational wealth to fall back on as far as like, families that can rescue them. So I think that uh, ultimately it, it's, it's a defining fear. I think it exists for me, I think it exists for a lot of people regardless of the industry they're in.
2: When I was researching for this uh, program, I love to do research, so I got online and just looked up, you know, lazy youth or something like that. And I came across a a hashtag that was quit talk on TikTok. Uh, That's Q U I T. T-O-K, and I'm just going to read a couple of the examples, but it was very interesting, and, and anyway, this hashtag #QuickTalk Talk uh, actually exploded with young people uh, sharing why they had quit their jobs during the Great Resignation. So, And I, I was very impressed with them. One yo- young woman had gone to college, and she'd actually gotten a, a job in her field, but she said, no job should make you want to kill yourself. Now, that's drastic. Make you compromise your mental and physical health, your personal relationships, or your life in general and she had quit another woman said it's not that young people don't want to work it's that they don't want to work for terrible employers so um tell me uh tristan we'll start with you and then margaret how do you feel how do you feel about that i, I just kind of know you want to know your reactions to these quit talk quit on TikTok.
7: And I, I know you, uh, just just because you started TikTok, uh, and I'm a big TikToker, probably unhealthy. Um, <laughs> it, it's definitely something that is a pervasive theme amongst young people on social media, even if it's not an actual like. Uh, you, I don't know how many people are actually quitting their jobs immediately, and it's probably highlighting situations where people do quit their jobs. But um, I, I think that you see that across other social media networks as well. If you if you if anyone uses Reddit, uh, the subreddit anti work came up during the pandemic. I think there's like 2.5 million people now who are on that subreddit. Uh, And the focus of it is the, uh, frankly, hostile dynamics that exist in many working environments, regardless of the type of job it is, too. You can find poor bosses, you can find poor dynamics, poor safety, poor pay, poor workplace power in every single field, and I think that the idea that people are more willing to be like, you know what, I'm done with this, I'm stepping away, is uh, something that we should celebrate.
3: I agree and I want to highlight the mental health issues uh, discussed in the first comment. Um, one thing about our generation that is pretty notable is our willingness to vocalize mental health issues and to make that a uh, not a taboo subject but something that's widely talked about and widely accessible for most people. So when you're put in a position in a job where you don't feel valued and your personal time is not uh, respected and boundaries that you try to set are constantly broken down, that does have an effect on your mental health. And that is one area that I believe employers are really lacking on, you know, having good benefits, uh, like having days off for mental health, having um, respectful language that we use in programs in place for employees that are going through mental health crisis are extremely important in today's labor market. And, something that I think employees are going to demand more of their employers as we move forward. So I think the You know, when you're dealing with those emotional and mental health issues, and you're already feeling negative about your job, those things combined, you should leave, and you should not tolerate a job that is a negative environment for you. Uh, But I think that's something that's gonna be more common moving forward, so.
2: Well, well, I would say that's a very positive thing, that young people are more willing to talk about mental health issues, because back in my day, like you say, sometimes it was put under the rug, and I think that's Mm -hmm. very healthy. Uh, You're listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, and we're talking about the myth of lazy youth
4: one of the things i think you're describing margaret is the millennials will not tolerate a toxic workplace where previous generations would would allow themselves to work under those conditions
3: mm-hmm. and i think that also ties into you know why people have multiple jobs in their careers and why they're leaving now is they don't want to tolerate that negative behavior from their bosses
4: yeah when they don't have to because there's opportunities out there
3: mm-hmm.
4: Uh, this next uh, set of question or question is for Carson and Jameson. I read in one article that a 21-year-old receptionist said that most young people don't have a clear idea what a union is. So I want to start with you, Carson. What are your thoughts on that comment? <laughs> uh,
8: well, that's a comment. I, I, I don't think I would uh, necessarily agree with that. Um, so a big part of my work is um, uh, political education and engagement with union members. And I will say some of the most engaged, active um, and and quite honestly, brilliant people in in unions right now um, are the young are the younger people. Um, they have a clear idea of what they want, like Margaret said, um, and so. Also, studies show that uh, millennials and Zoomers, Zoomers especially, are the most pro-union generation uh, currently by far. Um, their union approval uh, among younger people is, is much higher than it is among older people at this moment. Um, and so, no, I, I would disagree with that comment. And I'm, I'm, I'm very mm-hmm. excited to see um, all the cool things that um, young people are, are doing in their unions. I mean, for example, we've seen the the um, surge in, in Starbucks uh, unionization. Mm-hmm. That is entirely led by some of even the youngest workers that we possibly have right now. Um, and so that's really exciting um, and to, to to see what else younger workers can do um, and, and engage with unions that way.
2: Carson, what's a Zoomer?
8: So a Zoomer is a Generation Z. Um, so I believe anyone under maybe from five to twenty-five. Okay. Um, that's so gen- Generation Z is the one that's just younger than millennials. Okay. And they're yes. called Zoomers.
2: Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Jamison, how about you? What do you think about that comment about a lot of young people don't really know what a union is?
6: Oh, I, th- I think Carson nailed it there. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people do know what a union is. I think where where there's maybe the disconnect is that a lot of young people want unions and um, haven't quite broken through on access to them like, We want to. I mean, young people like, I mean, Chris Smalls is an example with Amazon Labor Union. He's 34 years old. Um, So I think young people certainly know what unions are. As Carson mentioned, we're pro union. I think maybe where there is less familiarity or less uh, readiness for young people is all the union busting, um, that, that might be the sort of the disconnect there. So yeah, that, that's what I'd say is let's get more acquainted with union busting. So we know how to fight back against it.
2: Yeah. I saw the Amazon worker at the AFT convention. He was, he was spectacular. So I think we have to close. Uh, we're getting it. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, my co-host, uh, Tom Gep- Tom Gepkin and I, sorry, <laughs> want to thank uh, James Etta wells Margaret Miles, Carson Pope, and Tristan Amasqua hogan for being with us. They were great. Thank you so much. We were, learned a lot.
4: Thank you very much, guys. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for having us.
0: Hi, this is Judy Ansell, and with me on the phone from Washington, D.C. is Mark Grunberg with Washington Window on Workers. How are you doing, Mark?
9: I'm fine. Thank you very much.
0: Good. Well, you wrote an awesome story, uh, to use the younger generation's language here, about um, the... The new House Labor Committee, oh gosh, we can't call it labor anymore. So this is the House Education and Labor Committee, only they changed the name. What is it now?
9: Education and the Workforce. They did that before, too. It's gone back and forth ever since 1995. That's
0: kind of ridiculous. So, So who's the new chair?
9: The new chair, who was a chair before, is a woman named Virginia Fox. She's a grandmotherly-looking uh, gray-haired little old lady from North Carolina with wire rim glasses. You think she's nice and sweet until she gets up and talks about workers. Uh-huh. Then she turns into a harridan.
0: Oh, no. Well, uh, what's a harridan?
9: <laughs> a harridan is a shrew, an extreme shrew.
0: Oh, my gosh. What's her agenda?
9: Her agenda is basically pro-corporate, pro-right pro, pro right to work, and and anti-teachers union anti-union period and 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 anti and anti and anti-worker and, in so and many tell words. me
0: what's the power of this committee is this going to really hurt um, working people and the labor movement?
9: Well it's 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 interesting in that we have a flip from the last Congress right the last Congress you know, the the education and labor committee would pass all sorts of pro-worker bills. Mm-hmm. They'd go over to the Senate, and McConnell would filibuster them or threaten the filibuster and Bernie Sanders didn't have enough votes or patty Murray then didn't have enough votes to get them out of the Senate Labor Committee mm-hmm. now they're going to this bunch will pass a bunch of anti worker legislation because this committee is always ideologically stacked have extreme right wingers on one side and very very liberal people on the other mm-hmm. um and then he'll go over to the Senate, and guess who's chairing the Senate Labor Committee? Now, Bernie, Bernie Sanders, yeah. Yes. <laughs>
0: I know, yes. Yeah, so.
9: And he's got the vote. So,
0: <laughs> so this sounds like so, nothing is going to happen then, because right. you're going to have these bills passed by the House, which won't pass mm-hmm. the Senate, and, and vice versa. Um, but uh-huh. this is also the House Education Committee, and some of the things that— are in store for them are really kind of scary um yes you know it sounds like what they want to do is they they have a parental bill of rights which would Uh whitewash American history and social studies with emphasis on the word white um Mm -hmm. yes exactly that's what I put in the
9: story yeah what
0: what are the chances of this thing getting through
9: uh chances are actually pretty good for that one because they The Republicans are big on social issues, and, of course, this will go with their whole deal about critical race theory and anti-teachers unions and all the rest. So this will get through the House, and then Bernie will bury it again. Oh, good. So All right. Yes. Um,
0: As a teacher of American history, I know that American history isn't just white, but anyway. Right. And then there's uh, the—we've only got a minute left, but then there's the— Appropriations Committee, and who's the chair of that one?
9: The chair of that one is a man named Robert Adderholt from Alabama. His big deal is the Hyde Amendment. He's he's very, very right to life. He supports Alabama's recently passed anti-abortion bill, which says you can't have any abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Um, and indeed, most of the Republican caucus goes along with that. It's not even worse. Uh-huh. Um, He's been rather silent on labor issues and certainly on money issues for labor. But he said he wants to cut domestic programs and of course there's the Labor Department, the NLRB and all this and all the and all the programs that workers depend upon as right. an inviting target for him.
0: So we can expect in our next couple of years budgets that we're actually gonna see a decrease in the budgets for the Department of Labor and, and the National Labor Relations Board?
9: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm among right. others of course bernie will bernie and the senate will probably restore them right back again so yeah then we'll and we'll have more fights
0: then we'll have a standoff sounds like right. it sounds like you're gonna have fun covering <laughs> congress um right <laughs> well thanks i'm gonna Mark. be
9: paying more attention to the administration actually they're going to be doing a lot of stuff at, you know with rules and things like that so, right and you and everybody else should too
0: yeah it sounds sounds like that's the way to go um thanks very much mark Greenberg. we'll talk to you next month
9: okay talk to you then
0: okay bye and now for the heartland labor forum calendar it's pretty brief but you can also find it on our facebook page at least after i put it up there tonight um the Unitarian Forum uh, this Sunday is the State of the City Address by Mayor Quentin Lucas. And that's Sunday, January 29th at 9.30 a.m. at the Unitarian Church at 4501 Walnut and in Conover Hall. Or you can watch it online. All you have to do is go to allsoulskc.org in order to get a link. Johnson County Legislative Lunch and Learn, sponsored by the Voter Rights Network, will be Saturday, February 4th, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Johnson County Community College Regnier Center, 12345 College Boulevard, and they want you to register, and again, you can look for our calendar online to get the registration link, and then meet the candidates for county administrator of the unified government that's kansas city kansas tuesday february seventh, 7 p.m at city hall 701 north 7th street kansas city kansas that's it for our show tonight uh tune in next week our show is called rock chalk union organizing at ku and Empower the Multilateral Partnership for Organizing Worker Empowerment and Rights. It's an international initiative coming out of the U.S. Department of Labor. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Scott Stanton, and stay tuned for the Thursday night special, which is Rhythm and Soul with Megan. Also, Please fill out the listener survey at kkfi.org and tell us what your favorite shows are, and I hope the Heartland Labor Forum is among them. listening to the heartland labor forum a show by and about workers our workplaces and our labor movement we are radio that talks back to the boss and you can talk back to us too Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5, right here,
2: at 90.1 FM we still got our
1: pride, because we are the working class, and that's the place to be. He said, if I were Frank Sinatra, I'd pull strings and through political pull, you'd be on top of the globe.